And so he doesn't, unlike his father, the first time run ahead of God, he comes now in faith. He not only learns from Abraham's failure, he learns from Abraham's faith. And he knows, yes, God has to give us a baby. And so exercising human responsibility, he prays. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Berge, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We are in a difficult passage from Romans chapter 9, in which the Apostle Paul makes an argument for the Jewish nation being God's chosen nation. And in our study today, Pastor Berge will look at the Son of Promise, the one through whom the Son of God would come, namely Isaac. It's very clear, and this is what Paul is affirming in Romans 9 and verse 10, that God chose the lineage that would come out of Isaac, that he would be the son of promise. That is God's sovereign decision. Now, that does not mean in God choosing Isaac to bring the Messiah, that he hated Ishmael, and that today Ishmael is in hell. Not at all. And Paul makes that clear. And Genesis makes it clear. In Genesis 21 and verse 13, we read this. And of the son of the maid, I will make a nation also, because he is your descendant. And of course, if you know history, Ishmael had 12 sons like Jacob had 12. He has 12 sons that formed 12 Arab nations. And God exceedingly blessed the Arab nations. And they are some of the wealthiest people on the planet even to this day. At the end of Ishmael's life, we read and studied this verse from Genesis 25. Let me read it again. These are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years, and he breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. God says that Ishmael was gathered to his people. Who are his people? He only has a dad and a mom at this point who has died. Abraham has already died. Where did he go? To hell or heaven? He went to heaven. He went to literally Abraham's bosom, as the New Testament calls it. Paradise. And today he's in the New Jerusalem. How about his mother, Hagar? Well, if you know Genesis, you know in Genesis 16 that when she died, she died as a believer. So you're going to meet Hagar in heaven someday. So the only people that he has who has died is his dad and his mom, and they're both, in New Testament terminology, home with the Lord. In fact, if you look at the phrase, gathered with his people, it's only used seven times in all of the Bible, in every time of a believer. It's used in Genesis 25 and verse 8, when Abraham dies. It's used in the verse that we just read of Ishmael in Genesis 25. It's used of Isaac when he dies in Genesis 35. Isaac, the type of Christ. It's used of Jacob in Genesis 49. It's used of Aaron in Numbers 20. It's used of Moses in Deuteronomy 33. And it's used of that godly king, King Josiah, who also is gathered to his people in 2 Kings 22. So we would say that he went home to be with the Lord. But here's the point. Ishmael, though he's blessed of God, though you will meet Ishmael in heaven someday, he did not share the same spiritual blessing that Isaac did in the sense that Messiah didn't come out of his family. It came out of Isaac's family. And yet he was physically related to Abraham. That's the point that Paul wants to make, that it's possible to be physically related to Abraham 
and not necessarily to share in the same spiritual blessings. He's already affirmed that in verse 6, that not all Israel are true Israel. And now he affirms it with two illustrations, that there are other people that come out of Abraham's line and they don't share the same covenant blessings of God. Now, God told Abraham that he was not to be distressed over his son Ishmael in Genesis 21, 12. Literally, the Hebrew says, you're not to be grievous. I've heard your prayer. What was he praying for his son for? You know the things that mattered to Abraham were spiritual blessings. And those are the things that matter to every parent. You don't care if your child makes a name for himself, whether he's wealthy or any of those things. Those are all meaningless to you if your son or daughter dies and goes to hell. Here, the father of the faithful, the friend of God, the father of all who believe, loved this little boy who was given to him at the age of 86, and he prayed earnestly for this son, and you know that he's going to meet this son someday in heaven because he's gathered to his people. To further explain, look at verse 8 in your Bibles of Romans 9, that is, it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God. It's not Abraham's other children by Hagar and later by Keturah after Sarah dies and he has six more boys when he marries again. It's the children of Isaac. Now the term children of God is used in different ways in the Bible. Sometimes it's used in a broad way like in Malachi 2.15 or in Acts 17 of, of someone who's a child of God in the sense that they are created by God. God is the one who gave us all life and breath. And in that sense, you can say we're all children of God only in a creative sense and that we're made in His image and likeness. It's also used in a spiritual sense like in John 1.12, as many as received Him. To them, He has given the right, the power, the authority to be children of God. But it's also used to describe the nation of Israel as a whole. But just because they are the children of God, the chosen people, chosen as a nation, it did not mean that every individual in that nation went to heaven. And so he continues here in verse 8, because there's no substitute for personal faith. It is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. For this is the word of promise. And he quotes Genesis 18 that we had just read. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. So it is not the natural children, the children of the flesh, who are simply physical descendants of Abraham, who are the children of God. Clearly, the children of the promise, the children of the seed, the children of the sperma, are Isaac's descendants and not Ishmael's. Now, I think it will become clearer to you. This is the meat of the word. This is not the milk. It's complicated, but I took the time to review that to set the stage. As he further explains that what is in view here is national election and not personal election. And he's going to do that with this second illustration concerning Jacob and Esau. Three simple points in your outline. First, God's choice of Jacob was a choice of God, not man. His choice was a choice of God, not man. Please notice, if you will, now verse 10. And not only this, but there was Rebekah also when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. So the second illustration proves God's right to sovereignly choose one nation over another. And God's choice has absolutely nothing to do with man and it has everything to do with himself. You see, someone could look at the first illustration with Isaac and Ishmael and say, well, we know why God chose Isaac. 
It's clear. Ishmael was not legitimate. He came through Hagar. No wonder God chose Isaac and not Ishmael. Well, Paul reminds us in the second illustration, no, it doesn't have anything to do with human merit or performance or anything. It has everything to do with God's sovereign choice. And so notice how this 10th verse begins. And not only this, that is not only did Sarah receive a divine promise, but Rebecca also received a promise concerning her two sons, Jacob and Esau. And so the election of Isaac and the non-choosing of Ishmael to bring the Messiah and the election of Jacob and the non-choosing of Esau to bring the Messiah has everything to do with God's sovereignty and nothing to do with man. And that's clear because in this situation, you don't have two boys with two different mothers, but you have two boys with the same mother. In fact, they are twins. They are womb mates, we could say, I suppose. That's womb, get it, blah, blah, blah. Y'all are asleep this morning. They're womb mates. They came from the same admission. They were conceived at the same time. And not only this, but there was Rebecca also. Literally, the Greek says, out of one conception. The word for conception is the Greek word koite. We got our word koitis from it. He uses this word to indicate and to affirm that they not only had the same mother, they came from the same emission. He's emphasizing in the second illustration that any human rationale as to why God chose one over the other has to be totally thrown out the window. Again, it would be argued by Samuel, Ishmael came by the bondwoman. And that's why he set aside Ishmael. But here, human logic does not fit. Because these boys are twins, and God chose one twin over another. Now again, God is God. He can do whatever he pleases to do. And we can argue with God all we want to argue with God, but our fallen, finite thinking is never sufficient. And so God in his sovereignty chose one over the other. Why didn't he choose Esau over Jacob? Because God is God. God made his choice, which brings us to the second point. God's choice of Jacob was a choice of grace and not works. It was a choice of grace and not works. Further, to blow away our faulty thinking, he says again, beginning in verse 10, and not only this, but there was Rebecca also, when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For although the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand not because of works, but because of him who calls. Now notice the very first word in verse 11. I have it circled in my Bible. It's the word for. So he's connecting verse 11 to the prior thought. He's giving some rationale. In other words, Paul is not done with his argument in comparing God's sovereign choice. He still wants us to see something else. It's one thing for God to choose Isaac over Ishmael, because Isaac was born from Sarah and the other came from the handmaid, it's quite another thing for God to choose Jacob over Esau when they're both pure-blooded Jews. They're both Jews. Esau is a Jew. Now, he's not going to marry a Jew, and so he's going to form another nation of people. And the descendants of Esau are called who? Edomites. I heard a few people, the Edomites come from them. So God has already said to Sarah, there's a whole bunch of nations that you're going to be a princess over. 
Because not all Jews are going to marry Jews and some are going to disperse in other peoples and new nations will be formed. Now, he makes it very clear that God's choice had nothing to do with merit. He says plainly, it's by grace before anything was done, good or bad. God said, listen, my decision was made before the twins were born, before they had done anything good or bad. In other words, God didn't say, well, I look at Jacob, you know, he's going to be a good guy. And so I'm going to choose Jacob over Esau because Esau, he's just, you know, a carnal rebel of sorts. No, God says, my choice is made before they ever do anything. It's a deliberate decision. Why? So that his purpose, according to his choice, the word we get our election from, that his election would stand. All right, so it's based totally on the grace of God, has nothing to do with the merit of the boys. Now stay with me. God's choice of Jacob was a choice of grace over works, but thirdly, God's choice of Jacob was a choice of Israel over Edom. It was a choice of Israel over Edom. Let's get a running start into verse 12. Read 11 again. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls... It was said to her, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hate it. Now again, my, my hyper-Calvinistic friends would take these verses and say, ever before these two children were created, ever before they saw the light of day, ever before they were conceived, in God's sovereign mind, he created one to go to heaven and he created the other to go to hell. Again, I don't believe that, and I don't believe that's what Scripture teaches, nor the rest of Scripture teaches. And I told you one of the keys to understanding Romans 9 is to take all of these Old Testament quotations, and in the New American Standard, you will see the way a quotation is given if you're new to the Bible, and there are hundreds here in the two services that have been Christians less than two years. And if you're new to the Bible, then the way an Old Testament quotation is rendered is by all caps in the NAS. So you see these are two Old Testament quotations. Now, in the case of Jacob and Esau, it's a little different from the case of Ishmael and Isaac. Because in the case of Ishmael and Isaac, both of them went home to be with the Lord. You will meet both of those uh, men in heaven someday. But in the case of Jacob and Esau, the Bible informs us that Jacob clearly knew the Lord such that when Jacob dies, Genesis 49 teaches that he was gathered to his people. Again, a phrase that is used only of true believers. However, Esau's death, it's not even recorded in the book of Genesis. But in the New Testament, God gives us a commentary on his life. And in Hebrews chapter 12, when God describes Esau's life, he describes him as both immoral and as a godless person. Now, Christians can debate whether or not he went to heaven as a rebellious saint or whether he went to hell as a lost sinner. But in this context, it's irrelevant because what Paul has in view, as we're going to see from these two Old Testament quotations, is not personal salvation, but God's sovereign election of two nations. Now, if you'll notice here, the two quotes, if you have a New American Standard with marginal notes, and you wanted to see where verse 12 came from and verse 13 came from, you will discover it comes from two different books in the Bible. You might want to put next to verse 12 or circle the marginal notation in the margin there, Genesis 25, 23. The first quotation comes from the first book of the Old Testament. 
The second quotation in verse 13 comes from the last book of the Old Testament, from the book of Malachi, verse 1 and verse 2. With that said, let's go to the book of Genesis. Go to the book of Genesis, and let's turn, if you will, to Genesis chapter 25. Go to Genesis chapter 25. And again, I think when we look at this in its context, you will see this morning that what is in view in 9, 10, and 11 is not personal election, but national election. Genesis 25, and Paul, I think, assumes a certain amount of biblical literacy. Remember, in the early church, for the first decade or so, they didn't have any Bible but the Old Testament. They couldn't go, well, let's see what Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, those books were being written. And so when they gathered as the early church, what did they study? The Old Testament Scriptures. When Paul went and evangelized throughout the Acts, what did he reason from? The Old Testament Scriptures. He was writing his 13 books of the New Testament on his three missionary journeys. And so they knew the Old Testament Scriptures a lot better than we do. So Paul assumes a certain literacy or at least a certain expectation that you'll go back and study it. Look at Genesis 25 and now look at verse 19. We read, now these are the records of the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham became the father of Isaac. And Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padanaram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. Now, if you know the chapter before, you know that God brought Isaac and Rebekah together. I mean, if there was ever a marriage made in heaven, it was this one. Here was a couple that was devoted to the Lord and they were devoted to each other. But by this point in Genesis 25, they had been married for 20 years and Rebekah was still not pregnant. And the problem is not with Isaac, the problem is with Rebekah. Now, please notice that Isaac, like his father Abraham, was a man of prayer. We read in the next verse, verse 21, Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren. And the Lord answered him, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. Now, Isaac learned an incredible lesson from his father Abraham. He knew that God had made a promise concerning a land, a seed, and a blessing. God had promised to the Hebrew people in an everlasting covenant the land of Israel. It is their land. It doesn't matter what politicians in America and other nations want to think about it. It is their property. God himself gave it to them. And there's going to be a forever conflict until Jesus comes back. He is the one who will settle the land dispute. And so God promised them a land. He promised to bless them as a people. And indeed he has only 15 million Jews in the world today, but they stand out out of all the peoples on the planet. They are in the news every single week. Such a small group of people. There's nearly 2 billion Chinese. There's nearly 1 billion Pakistanis, over a billion Indians, only 15 million Jewish people, but they are the center of a focus every single day. And God promised them a land. He promised to bless them. And he attached that blessing a seed, not any seed, Messiah's seed, that Messiah would come from the Jewish people. And I hope you don't despise the Jewish people or ever speak negatively of them. Our Savior is a Jew. Salvation is from the Jews. And again, salvation history is going to be completed on that piece of property. Jesus not only died in Jerusalem, he's coming back to the Mount of Olives in the city of Jerusalem, and his feet are literally going to touch the ground, the prophet Zechariah says. So here's Isaac. 
And he knew of the land, the seed, and the blessing that God had promised to his father. And God will reiterate that promise not only to Abraham, but to Isaac as well up there on Mount Moriah in Genesis 22. If you turn back a couple of pages to Genesis 22 in verse 16, if you remember, God had had Abraham and Isaac go to the top of Moriah. And Abraham, when he left his servants behind, he said, we are going to worship and we are going to return. And the Hebrew first person plural pronoun we is in both Hebrew verbs. We're leaving, we are coming back. And yet he knew that his son was going to become a burnt offering on top of that altar. That by the time he was done, his son would not only be dead, he'd be turned into a pile of ashes. But he believed without wavering that God was going to bring life to that boy. That's what he believed. That's what he stood on that God would raise him from the dead because that's where he got him to begin with, from the deadness of Sarah's womb. And Isaac, he's not a young boy, if you remember at this point. He's around 20 years old. He carries on his back a picture of Messiah himself who dies himself on Mount Moriah, wood as he goes up that hill. That's no eight-year-old boy carrying the wood. That's a young teenager, possibly around 20, 21, 22 years of age. And he's much stronger and more powerful than his elderly father. And he certainly could have overpowered him, but he didn't like the Lord Jesus. He's going to give his life. He in faith is up there. We could speak also of the faith of Isaac. And so he goes and Abraham gets ready to thrust the knife and literally the decision has been made, the writer of the Hebrews tells us. And it's at that moment that the angel of God stays his hand. And he tells him no. And he says, no, I've got another plan. And then he reiterates the Abrahamic covenant. And that's what I want you to see in verse 16. God says, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, in 22.16. You know, that's the way you really affirmed an oath. We used to say as kids, I'll put my hand on a stack of Bibles and say that. And then we really mean what we're saying. Or we'll say, I swear to God, and we really are supposed to be doing that in a court of law. When we put our hand on the Bible, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. And we put our hand on the Bible. Our politicians typically put their hand on the Holy Scriptures when they take the oath of office. Well, God can't say, I swear to God, and that there's some God that he can swear to. So the text says, by myself I have sworn. I love that, declares the Lord. Because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Indeed, I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore, and your seed shall possess the gates of their enemies. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So right after the angel of the Lord stops Abraham from putting a knife in Isaac's heart, he reaffirms the Abrahamic covenant. Now think about this. Isaac is married to Rebekah, been married 20 years, no children. And yet he knows that he is the son of promise. And so for his descendants to be like the stars in the sky, like the sand on the seashore, or like the dust on the earth, the three metaphors that God uses to describe the multiplicity of people, then his wife has got to get pregnant. And so he doesn't, unlike his father, 
the first time run ahead of God, he comes now in faith. He not only learns from Abraham's failure, he learns from Abraham's faith. And he knows, yes, God has to give us a baby. And so exercising human responsibility, he prays and she conceives. And by the way, that's the way you ought to pray. That's the way I ought to pray. We ought to find the promises of God and plead the promises of God. God, what did you promise? And God loves it when we take him at his word because that pleases him. And so she conceives and she has a baby. It's a marvelous thing that takes place. Now, uh, look at Genesis 25. Turn over another page or so and look at verse 22. She gets pregnant and it's a very active pregnancy And we read in verse 22, and this is where our text comes from in Romans, in this chapter, but the children struggle together with her. So she gets pregnant with twins. And she said, if it is so, why then am I this way? Why is this this big struggle within me? So she went and she inquired of the Lord. She recognizes this is no ordinary pregnancy. She knows there's two children in her and they're struggling within her. And being the sensitive believer that she is, she doesn't just write it off. She goes and she inquires of God. Isaac was fortunate to have a wife who knew how to pray. She wanted to understand the will of God. And I am fortunate that God gave me a wife who knows how to pray, who knows how to wrestle with God on behalf of her children. So she went to inquire of the Lord. Verse 23, the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. And two peoples will be separated from your body. And one people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. Now, had she gone to some obstetrician in that day, and had she had, had they had sonograms in that day, the obstetrician probably would say, oh, just relax, Rebecca, you got twins. That's why there's such a rumly match going on in your womb. Everything's fine, they're healthy. But this woman is sensitive. And she seeks the Lord God in the process. And God gives a divine sonogram, which he reveals some theology and some prophecy. Notice, two nations are in your womb. And as you know, one nation is named Yaakov, Jacob, the other is named Esau. Two peoples will be separated from your body. God is prophesying about the descendants of these two sons. These twin boys ultimately represent two nations. Now remember, years later, God renames Jacob to be Israel. And so he becomes the progenitor, the father of the Israelites. And Esau is going to marry a non-Jew. And he has become the father of the Edomites. Furthermore, we're told, and one people shall be stronger than the other. And indeed, the Jews were stronger than the Edomites. And if you remember your Old Testament, Israel had three key enemies. And the Edomites were one of them. But in God's mercy, they, the Jews, people were stronger. And then he says, notice, and the older shall serve the younger. That's Romans 9, verse 12 that we're reading today that Paul is quoting. So Paul says, listen, there are two nations in your womb. These two sons are going to become progenitors of two peoples. As small geographically and in population as Israel is, it is regularly in the news. And that's not by accident. God has a future plan for Israel as was promised to Abraham and Isaac. If you would like to hear today's message again in its entirety, use the Search the Scriptures app available on the iTunes Store or Google Play Store or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. 
And if you'd like a CD or DVD copy, call Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and request today's program entitled, Chosen from the Womb. Tomorrow, Dr. Brogy's wife, Audrey, is in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. And Monday will conclude the message, Chosen from the Womb. Join us then as we search the Scriptures.